It's Brian Preston, the money guy. Restoring order to your financial chaos. Retirement, investing, taxes. You've got financial questions, he's got financial answers. It's Brian Preston, the money guy. Welcome, Money Guy listeners. This is your host, Brian Preston, and um, we've got a good one for you today because I don't think you can walk around if you're a financial person and not have somebody ask you about Roth IRA conversions and are they right. And I, th- and I think that's primarily because there's a big media push going on right now by the big wirehouses, banks, and others that are saying you've got to do this Roth conversion because 2010 is a, a, a unique year, which it is, and I'm not taking anything away from it. Bo and I have had a lot of discussion about this. We want to make sure we had everything figured out before, or most of the things that we can figure out, um, kind of tied down before we brought this show to you. So we're going to try to be your, your source for all the information you need to know if you need to, to look at doing the Roth conversion for you and your family. Now, uh, as I mentioned, this is Brian Preston, your host. I am a certified public accountant, certified financial planner, and a personal financial specialist. And by day, this is not actually what I do for a living. By day, I'm actually a fee-only wealth manager on the south side of Atlanta, And this is our own little Frankenstein project that we've just started doing these podcasts a number of years ago, and they just kind of taken a life of their own and grown and grown and grown. And part of that evidence of that growth is now I have an associate that helps me out with the show, and I'm crazy enough to give him a microphone. I've got (laughs) my associate, Bo Hansen, who also joins me. And I know, Bo, you've been really excited about doing these Roth conversion discussions. I have been because, you know, a lot of people ask me, well, what's the deal with this Roth conversion? And, and honestly, up up until the past past few weeks, it's kind of been, well, you know, this is what they're saying, but we don't have a ton of information about it. We need to figure it out. It may make sense. It may not make sense. Well, we've put enough enough legwork into it now that I think we have a solid base of what you need to be looking at to determine if this is uh, if this is a good decision for you, and um, and that's kind of what we want to share today. And I'm so excited about it because I think it's a wonderful planning opportunity all the way around the board, if it makes sense. Well, I also want I want to kind of book in this is I've got one thing I want to say before we get into the Roth IRA discussion. I think it's kind of timely since we had the State of the Union address yesterday, and and I got to tell you one of the things that excites me about this podcast is that we have picked up clients as well as just found out that our podcast is heard by people in Washington. So I'd feel kind of amiss if I didn't express some of my thoughts on a few of the things going on because I have a unique perspective, being that I'm on the school board down here in the the area I live. And we're, it's not like a small school system either. We have over 40,000 students. We're the seventh biggest school system in the state of Georgia. And then I want to say top 100. We are within the top 100 school systems, meaning on size, within the entire nation. So I think I can give you a perspective on how politics and education cross with your back pocket and your pocketbook as well. So I'm going to bookend that with, we're going to close out the show, is I got an email from one of my listeners who's actually also a CPA, because we do um, attract very high caliber listeners, and I appreciate you guys listening, who kind of, um, he didn't really take offense. I think he even agreed with what I said about paying off debt and paying off mortgages, but he, th- he felt like I needed to provide some clarification. So I'm going to make sure um, before I close out the show that I read his email, because I, I don't think I need to really provide too much comment, because his email said it very well, and I think I'm just going to go ahead and and pass that on to you guys. So you know that I actually do read these emails. They do drive the content of this show, and I I want you to be a part of it. And if you want to be a part of the show, please write me. You can write me at brian, that's B-R-I-A-N, at money-guy.com. You can also go check out our show notes at money-guy.com. And you can, while you're on the, the website, you can also sign up to get free 
kind of a, if we ping you or send you an email um, blast whenever we do update the content of the show. And if you really like it, you can sign up for the premium. Now, Bo's going to probably dislike that I'm going to say this because um, I already see him dropping his head. Uh, I want to encourage you to hold off on the premium membership for another week or two is because we are actually doing some some modifications to the premium content that I think you guys are all going to love. Um, it's going to help you on your back pocket with your pocketbook, but it's also going to um, to make this, I, I, I call it the more cost of fun ratio. And I always, when I do things in life, I, I put a value to it and I say, is that really worth what I spent on it? And I want to, I'm looking at our premium section and realizing I've been missing the point on this thing. So if you just trust me on that, hold off for, for a week or two before you sign up for the premium. I know that sounds, that's probably the worst business decision or worst business move a person, a business owner can do is, you know, say, hey, don't, don't, don't sign up, don't subscribe yet. But I'd rather be honest with you and tell you we're making some big adjustments. So, so hold on before you sign up on the premium. Please register on the free side so you get that content. Now, this is going to benefit both, both our future members and our current members. Yeah, I, I don't, if you've signed up and you're already a premium, don't go, oh gosh, what is Brian? Don't worry. It's going to be good for everybody involved. I think you'll like what we're going to say, but we're doing some tweaks. We're working with our technical people to make sure it's possible. Now, I want to get into, I want to get into the, 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 the nuts and bolts of the Roth conversion, but I have to really quick, because we did have the State of the Union yesterday, and I think it's very timely to, to talk about my unique perspective. As I told you, I, you know, being a CPA and also being involved with local government, being on the Board of Education, an elected member of the Board of Education, I think I can provide some insight that a lot of people just don't see. And I, and I can tell you what, what I'm very surprised about, well, I'm not really surprised because it's been going on since probably time began, is whenever you hear politicians speak, and I'm not just talking about President Obama, I, believe me, I've, I'm talking about all the presidents that have preceded President Obama, I'm talking about anybody who's in the House, the Senate, they always talk about how important education is to the public. And how education is super, super important. How our children are our future. And how we have to spend so much money on education. But then, I've got to tell you, I feel like there's a little bit of disconnect in government that I think the public has not caught on to. And this is going to have a direct impact on what happens in our financial markets and everything else. And that's why it fits the Money Guy Show uh, perspective here. Is because this is going to impact what happens to your financial household. Is because... There's a disconnect between what's going on at the federal level and the state and the local level. And, and this is what I mean by that, is you have to realize, going back to Government 101, federal government is the only government source within the United States that has the ability to print more money. They can go, if they need more money, they don't have it in the bank, no biggie, let's just go run the printing press and we can run some more. State and local governments are very much like you and me. What happens with that is if, they're not, if there's not enough money in the bank, they're just like us, they have to do one of two things. They either have to go make more money or they have to spend less. So if all of a sudden, think about locally, property tax revenues are way down because, let's face it, the value of real estate has gone, especially I'm speaking specifically about the South because we live down here in Georgia, and I think maybe it's not like this everywhere, but i got to believe that it is like this in a lot of places because one of our clients is a, a governmental consultant. Um, we always pick on him about that because that sounds kind of um, 
kind of crazy to, to say that you give consulting to the government since. But um, anyway, but governmental consulting, he gets a, a, a magazine called Government or Governing or something. I think it's Governing. Governing. And um, part of it, what it had on its cover this past month was just talking about the state's issues, how there's a lot, there's broke and broker, um, talking about how their system's broke, but they're also broke financially as a system. So I don't think this is just a Georgia thing. But my point is, is that Right now, I can tell you in the county I'm in, Henry County, our tax digest, meaning our property tax digest, is probably down over 20%. So we're going to not be able to collect as much money locally from the tax rolls, meaning property taxes aren't going to generate enough, uh, much money. And then last week, the governor of Georgia, Sonny Purdue, Governor Purdue announced that education was be cut by half a billion dollars. So you put those two things together, and I can tell you right now, in the state of Georgia, a lot of school systems, including ours, are probably going to have to cut, not freeze. You hear federal government talk, they're all patting themselves on the back talking about a spending freeze, um, which they, they praise themselves for not spending more. Think about if you took a huge pay cut at, at the house and then you said, well, it's all right, we'll just spend like we did in 2007 and we should be okay, or 2000, you know, it, it doesn't work that way. You, you, have to, you have to find ways to come up with the money. So what we're having to do here in the state of Georgia, I know here locally, we're probably going to have to cut the budget somewhere between 13 to 16%. And that's right, cut. And that's going to mean big things. That could be, mean layoffs in the future for all state. You know, I think that's is going on on the state level. And my, my point being is that here you have the, the state government is cutting money. You've got the local government is cutting money out of their budgets. And somehow the federal government is just still going full speed ahead. And this is not a Democrat bashing thing because I said the same thing about the spending when, when President Bush was in. I just think that this is a Washington thing that we've got to get this, this bridge kind of connected. This disconnect needs to go away where you, you can't do, you can't spend more while we're in these economic times that we're in. I think we really need to look at that. I just wanted to point that out. Now, a lot of people will say, well, Brian, wait a minute, I heard that up there in Washington, they're going to be sending down some money from the federal government to help education. But let me tell you my thoughts on that. I don't want the federal government to send us any more money because there's a shell game going on between, the Was between Washington and the states. And I think the public needs to know this. Is The shell game is this, is that you, the federal government, say, say that the federal government says, I want to send $100 million to the state of Georgia because the state of Georgia needs money for education. So we're going to send $100 million to the state of Georgia for education. And, and you know, everybody on the public goes, ooh, great, hey, education, education, education. But the problem, this is a shell game, because all that does is, is the state takes that money that the federal government says, hey, take this $100 million, put it towards education. They put it towards education, but then on the same motion, that they put that money over to education, they also go and slide that number over, that $100 million that the state was going to give to the local communities for education. They take that money and put it elsewhere. So the, this is not a solution that needs to come from the federal government because all it's going to do is it's more of a state bailout than it's an education bailout. So I don't want a dime sent from the federal government because all it does is is going to cause more problems, and this ties directly into this Roth conversion discussion, more federal obligations that you and I are going to have to pay in the future. And this is, like I said, not a Democrat issue. This is not a Republican issue. This is a Washington issue, that there's a disconnect that we need to get this under control. Because I just, if you are a premium member, 
I want you to go look at the, the physical follies that we've updated and put out there. And, and remember how I've made fun of President Bush and how he just spent, spent, spent. Meanwhile, we had, you know, tax collections were going up, but not a lot. Well, now we have the exact opposite going on, is that tax collections, well, I, I should say, we have the inverse, where tax collections are way, way down. And I know we're trying to, you know, and you want to do some type of stimulus, but you're going to see that our spending is just through the roof. And I'll leave it at that, but I just want you to know, because I think a lot of people think when you hear a, a, a politician, what doesn't matter if it's Republican or Democrat, talk about they're going to help education, especially on the federal level. We all cheer and we think it's great, but I want you to see the nuts and bolts of what is actually going on behind the scenes, the shell game, and to let you know there's a disconnect between what's going on at the state and local level from what's going on at the federal level. And I'm hoping somebody up there at the federal level will wake up and say, Maybe we need to go reevaluate. If, if everybody in our districts and in, within the country is having to cut back and live, make more with less, maybe that would be good for the way we govern as well. Um, I think that we don't use the tax code as efficiently as possible. I mean, I've always said that I think private sector does a lot of things better than government does. I mean, you know, the thing I, I think about is that there's a lot of people that could use a lot of help. You know, you see what's going on in Haiti right now, and people are stepping up and helping out the private organizations. They're going to provide tremendous more resources to the Haitians than the, than the, the United States government can provide. And I think that we can apply that same logic here to the United States. I don't know why we don't provide where you don't have to itemize to be able to give you know, to charities that can help people who are in need and provide some type of incentive so maybe the federal government can step out of some of that stuff and let's let the helping hand of charities, which I'm, you know, and I know people, I'm going to get some negative emails. I can, Bo, I can feel it. People will get mad whenever I touch this stuff and they'll say, you don't know, you, you, here you are, a money guy, you make all, you know, you make good money, you don't know anything about charity. And I tell you, if you know me as a person, you know I volunteer. Bo picks on me tremendously because of all the time I'm not making money for this company because I serve on foundation boards and we're doing school system stuff. So please don't give me that I'm, I'm a cold-hearted, you know, don't have a heart, make money. It's not that way. I am very charitable. I just think that there's a more efficient ways. And I'll leave it at that. And let's get on to the, I hope I haven't run everybody off, Bo, because we have such a good topic. But I just, I wanted to make sure that I threw that out there because that's not, it's a Washington issue. It's not a partisan issue. It's what's going on in Washington. There's a disconnect and I wanted to throw that out there. So hopefully you won't beat me up too much, but I had to get it out there. Okay, Bo, I'm going to take a deep breath <laughs> and then we're going to talk about, um, because this does tie directly into the Roth conversion. Mm -hmm. And let's, let's kind of give an overview of why the Roth conversion is such a big deal, but I need to give a disclaimer first. Okay. As I've told you, we wanted to make sure before we did this show that we had our ducks in a row and felt like we tied everything down. But there's some big question marks that are sitting out there that I want to. I need to put a disclaimer because I know some of you guys are going to listen to this and you're going to you know make decisions off of it. Is that you need to realize that a lot of the things we're about to talk about are not completely certain because the federal government has not released the tax forms for 2010. You know, right now we're doing 2009 tax returns, and that's what the IRS is making sure they have all the 2009 forms on the IRS website and that are released to accountants and as well as tax preparation software and people doing their own personal taxes, that they're all correct. They have not addressed 2010 forms yet, and the form that is very important that's going to really make a big decision about how all this stuff plays out is tax form 8606, but it's the 2010 version of form 8606. So I want to put a disclaimer that everything we say here is as far as, far as we know, 
Correct. But there's a big question mark about how that form is going to play out. So some of these things could turn out to be uh, superseded or changed because the form is not what we anticipate. Because all we could do is look at what the way the form is laid out now and then try to make some assumptions about what they're going, the federal government's going to do with Form 8606. But um, just know that that's kind of a disclaimer, is that take all this with a grain of salt, that until we need, see how the, these forms fall out from the federal government, this is the best advice or best thoughts we can give you, because we, we can't give you personalized advice because we don't know you personally. We can just give you thoughts and kind of lay out things for you. This is, as far as we know, the best information that's out there. So with that, does that kind of sum it up, though? Absolutely. Okay. Let's talk about why there's such a hubadoo. I know I, I mess things up all, or hubaloo. What, what's, the, what's the thing? I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> well, why there's so much discussion about Roth IRAs. This is, this is a unique year, and, it's, and it, I know it's a big year because we had a, a big, um, we had our governor's honors banquet type thing for all the good students in the school system, and I had one of the administrators come up to me because they know what I do for a living. And they said, hey, Brian, what do you know about this Roth? So when I know when I'm hearing stuff from administrators and people in the school system and when I walk up on people in, in the public and they ask me about this, this is a big deal. And there's two things that are unique about 2010 and Roth IRAs. And what that is is that in the past, pre-2010, the only people that could convert to a Roth IRA were people who had incomes, adjusted gross income. That's if you total up everything all your income, but don't take deductions. That's a, but your adjusted gross income before deductions is um, it was a hundred thousand. That was the max. If you made over a hundred thousand dollars of total income, pretty much you couldn't convert. You were out. Also, if you didn't file a joint return with your spouse, if you're married, um, you had to have, file a joint return before you can do a conversion as well. Uh, those were kind of the requirements. Uh, that has changed. And, and think about it. Everybody who also makes over, Bo, what, what's the contribution limits on Roth IRAs? Is it somewhere between 166, 176, somewhere in that I, range? I, I think it moved up to 169 okay. is where it starts to phase out. And, and there's also a lot of people, if you have total income before deductions, adjusted gross income, and it was somewhere in that 166, 169, whatever, because they, they index that for inflation. But whatever that number was, before 2010, you couldn't do Roth IRAs. Because you couldn't convert into them, you couldn't contribute into them, you Roth IRAs just didn't exist unless you had a Roth on maybe your 401k or your 403b. And and Brian, just a real quick recap: why, why is a Roth such a good thing to be be invested in? Well, Roth IRAs or Roth, you know, Roth in general. Whenever you see Roth attached to an investment account, what is awesome about Roths is that they are tax free. It's after tax money. Now you do not get any tax deduction when you put the money in. But every bit of money that you put into a Roth grows completely tax-free, meaning that you put in $10,000, you invest in something tremendous, and it grows to be $100,000, you don't pay tax on that $90,000. Also, Roth IRAs have some other planning advantages. Most retire, All retirement accounts, pretty much, except for Roths, when you turn 70 and a half, they require you because the federal government says, hey, we're going to give you this great deal where your money can grow tax deferred, meaning you don't pay taxes until you start pulling the money out. Well, the thing is, some people put money in retirement accounts and really don't need that money. So the government has a catch-all in there is when you turn 70 and a half, they require you to tar start making minimum distributions. Well, guess what does not have this requirement where you have to start taking minimum distributions over your life expectancy? Roth IRAs. 
So you can turn 70 and a half, you can turn 71, 72, 73, you know, get all the way up to 90 years of age, you know, whatever the age be, you could live to be 120 and you're not required to take any money out of this Roth IRA. Think about the ability, you have tax-free growth and on top of that, the government doesn't tell you when you have to take the money out or force you to take that money out. Tremendous planning opportunity. Um, also, estate tax purposes wise, you could pass this on to your children. Now, your children are, will have to take it out over. There will be some minimum distributions for their Roth. But when they inherit it, when you inherit an IRA right now, a regular IRA or 401k or anything, somebody's got to pay the taxes at some point. When they start pulling that money out, they have to pay the taxes. Roth IRAs, when they pass to your beneficiaries, tax-free as well. So tremendous, tremendous things. That's why, you know, one of the first things we always tell people, and I don't mean to get off topic, but I feel like I need to double back. When I'm always giving people perspective on how to do retirement savings, I always say, make sure you get that match from your employer, whether they're offering a simple IRA, a 401k, a 403b. You've got to get that free money that they're putting out there for you. But after you maximize the free money, the, the, the matching money from your employer, Jump over to the Roth IRA if you can, if your income isn't too high. And then after you finish that out, then you can jump back and, you know, back over to the 401k or continue your retirement savings elsewhere. But the, the Roth is so powerful that after you get that match taken care of, you do want to have the money in the Roth IRA. So I, I think, does that, does that, is that a good kind of Ab overview? Absolutely. Though? Absolutely. So, but, so 2010, let's talk about why 2010 is so unique with Roth IRAs, is that that conversion limit of $100,000 goes completely away in 2010. You can make $10 million a year and still be able to do a Roth conversion. It's incredible. The other thing that's very unique about this year, only in 2010, is that you can spread the taxes that if you decide to do a conversion in 2010, you can spread the taxes over two years. So you can pay the taxes in 2011 and 2012 when you file your tax returns, which is kind of a unique thing because you can you can do some planning things. So a lot of you guys, I'm going to go through um, what type of accounts and stuff, but I need to give you a, a hold on before you get too excited about this because when for, people first heard about this, and I got a lot of calls about it, people go, this is awesome. This is great because I've got this non-deductible IRA I've been contributing to for years that, that you know, I'm going to be able to convert that over and it's not going to cost me anything because, hey, 2008 killed me on, on my gains and stuff, so I don't have a lot of money that I've made in this thing, so all that money I've put in that non-deductible IRA, I'm going to be able to convert and not pay any taxes. And then I always have to say, whoa, 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 wait a minute, I have a few more questions for you. Do you have a rollover IRA? Do you have a simple IRA? Do you have a SEP IRA that you've been funding? And people, Yeah. I'm like, well, wait, the government's not going to let you just choose which account that you want to go cherry pick and, and convert that over and not pay the taxes off of. This is where the biggest confusion is about this Roth conversion. And we'll get into even more details in a minute, but I have to make sure I give you the whoa, boy, you know, before you get too excited. is because a lot of people need to hear this next part, is that they, the government's not going to let you cherry pick which accounts you want to convert. And because you know what would happen, I would do the same thing. We're all going to go convert the ones that have basis in them, meaning that you've already paid taxes, you made contribution that with after-tax money to a regular IRA, a traditional IRA, and you want to convert that first because it wouldn't generate taxes. And you're like, this is a great way to stick it to the man. But the government's smarter than that. They said, we're going to make you prorate this. So for example, you have a non-deductible IRA for the last two years you put $5,000 a year in for. You put so that's ten grand. Um, we'll say it's just still worth ten grand because you haven't made any money because the stock market's been kind of boring and um, hasn't behaved in two thousand eight. But then you also have 
$20,000 in a 401k that you rolled over a year or two years ago to a rollover IRA. So if you actually added up all of your IRA assets, you've got $30,000. You got $10,000 in that traditional IRA um, that's after-tax money, and then you've got $20,000 in that rollover IRA. The government's going to make you, you know, prorate it where essentially two-thirds of the money is taxable because $10,000 is not, and then there's $20,000 that is. So two-thirds will be taxable. So if you convert $10,000, you're not going to be able to say, hey, I just want to allocate... You know, that's my non-deductible contribution, so there's no zero tax consequences. No, no, no. They're going to say two-thirds of that is taxable. So you need to think long and hard. Does, does that make sense, Bo? Do you think I explained the prorating? Theory? Absolutely. Because that's the part that when I talk to people, that's where they go, oh, I knew it was too good to be true. You know, don't, that, don't you get that feeling, Bo, when we've talked to people? They, they think that they're going to be able to cherry-pick this, and it's not going to work that way. Um, so let's move forward. I hope I've made that clear because that's the part that can be the most confusing about this entire process is that, um, you know, you are going to have to prorate the taxes. So this is not a slam dunk for just everybody that's involved. And I want to make sure I give you that list of which IRAs are included in that proration formula. So if you have any of these accounts, even if they're active, they're going to go into the formula. So that's all types of IRAs, including traditional IRAs, rollover IRAs, SEP IRAs, simple IRAs, SARSEP IRAs, which have been gone for years, but that you know people still have SARSEP sitting out there that they grandfathered in. Those all will go into that conversion calculation. However, beneficiary IRAs do not go into the calculation. That's very good point. Beneficiary. So if you inherited an IRA, then beneficiary IRAs are not going to be calculated. Also, your qualified plans are not going to be part of the um, the calculation too. So your 401ks, your 403bs. Those type of things are completely excluded. So let's talk about what makes a good candidate for conversion. And I'm going to give you, because a lot of these things, when I look at these handouts and stuff that, that I see on the websites, nobody is really willing to step out there and tell you what you need to be thinking of besides simple, common sense, low-lying fruit. Now, I'm going to go a little, because we, we go beyond common sense, as I always say here on the Money Guy Show. So I want to go a step further. And... The step further, I want to see how far we are on time here. Wow, okay, time's moving quick. we uh, we got to move this thing on along. But what makes a good conversion is you can convert at low or no cost. And a good example of that, there are people that fit this that are awesome, is that say you and your spouse both have 401Ks, or one of you has a 401K, the other has a 403B, but then y'all diligently been putting non-deductible IRA contributions for the last few years too. You are a no-brainer, slam-dunk conversion person because what happens is is that those 401Ks and 403Bs do not count in, in, in what you can convert. So you can convert that non-deductible IRA and truly have the best where you don't you can convert it without paying any income taxes unless you've made gains. Now, if you put, say, 5000 in an IRA and now it's worth six, you are you can convert that six into a, a Roth IRA but you're going to have to pay tax on $1,000. But it's still the best. That's the best situation I can think of is a person who does not, who has all their money in qualified money, but then has been making non-deductible IRA contributions so they can convert at low or no cost. So that's a great, great person that needs to consider it. Also, likely taxable income is going to be higher in retirement. And um, I can tell you one of the things, this is doesn't necessarily have to be a young person, um, my own mother, 
Bo and I did some analysis on my own mother. Um, she she was a, a teacher for many years, gets a, a teacher retirement pension, but she also has some IRAs that she inherited when my father passed away. And um, so she's going to start taking minimum required distributions in the next five years. So her income is actually going to increase over the next few years because of those required minimum distributions. So she is a perfect candidate for also looking at it to see if this is a good fit. And I'm going to give you an idea of where that sweet spot is on tax rates before, you know, before we get too far along in this. But I want to tell you that's a per- it doesn't have to just be a young person. An older person who's already retired might want to look at this too if your income is going to go up because there's minimum required distributions. Because remember, Roth IRAs don't have required distributions. So you don't have to do that. So it's a great planning opportunity. Also, Anybody who thinks there's going to be higher tax rates during withdrawals, and what does that mean? What that means is looking at that macro stuff. You know, I went on my, I got on my soapbox and jumped up there, and you know, and and started talking about the the politics of Washington. Well, realize Social Security and Medicare are in trouble. The government has, you know, got all these obligations in 2016 that. I don't know how it's all going to shake out. There are so many obligations out there. I don't care if you're a Republican, Democrat, taxes are going to have to go up somewhere. Because to pay all these obligations that we've made, they either got cut benefits, which, let's face it, who votes? It's the people that are getting these benefits. They're not going So cutting, I think, is out of the question. I think taxes are going to have to be raised to cover this. So it's very likely that tax rates are going to be a good bit higher going forward. And I, I, I just laying it out like it is, you know, I hope everybody understands that. But I do think that tax rates will be higher. And that's what that, that point is. Anticipate higher tax rates during withdrawal. And that means when you retire, who knows what tax rates could be because of all the obligations of the federal government. Also, remember, and I've already hit on this one, you can, um, Roth balances, you, know, you can go past required minimum distribution dates. And those who want to have already kind of hit on this one as well as those who would seek to potentially maximize after-tax dollars to their heirs. So if you're one of these people that um, you really want to maximize getting as much money to your children, the tax-free portion of of this is really incredible. You might want to look at the the Roth conversion for that. I'd also encourage people, if you the people to, to consider doing this is if you have enough cash to pay the taxes of the conversion. Because the last thing I want to see you do is convert, and then you lose 40%. If you use money from the account to pay for the taxes, you're going to lose probably close to 40% of the account value just doing the conversion. So I'd like you to have outside sources of cash to pay the taxes um, to do to consider doing this. I think that's very, very important. And then let me talk about the last category that's really not on any of the checklists I've seen, but Bo and I talk about this all the time, is that a good candidate for, for Roth conversion is somebody who's thinking about tax diversification. What, I, what do I mean by tax diversification? Just like when you allocate somebody's money, when you're managing money or you're allocating your own assets, your, your retirement assets or so forth, we always advocate, 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 did I make up a word? No, that's right, I think. <laughs> I want you to be an advocate for making sure that you have spread your money out over many different asset classes. Uh, I, I want you to make sure that you don't just have your money in the S&P 500 and that's it. You need to have some bonds. You need to have some international. You need to have you know, some long short funds. You need to get into other asset classes, commodities, and other things. You know, There's all kind of 
asset classes we encourage people to do. Well, you need to do the same thing with your taxes, with your retirement accounts. You want to have a portion in tax-deferred accounts. You want to have a portion in taxable accounts. And then you probably want to have a portion in tax-free accounts. So that's the tax diversification. So if you look at your portfolio, look at all your household net worth, and you say, you know what, I don't have any retirement assets growing in that tax-free bucket to really help me out just in case things get rough with the tax landscape out there. I think that's where tax diversification comes in. Bo, do you want to add anything um, on, on any of that? Because I also want to provide um, a list of who should not consider converting and then get into even greater details. Well, yeah, go go ahead and do that, and then I'll do a, uh, a very brief comeback and circle the wagons and bring it all back in. Okay, now while we were, while I was talking on my soapbox, I dropped every one of our worksheets here. Okay, back in, I found my sheet. It's so, so embarrassing you can't find what you're looking for. But um, factors against people who should probably not consider converting. Because I think everything you see in the news media is like, yeah, you should do it, you should do it, you should do it. But let's talk about p factors of people who should not. Um, people who probably factors against conversion is clients with, um, think about this. People, if this is going to result in a higher tax cost than the alternative, you might want to think differently of it. And I'm going to get into to the tax rates you want to think about. Um, your current taxable income is higher than usual. Think about that if you sold some piece of property or something that's really going to pump up your income for, for 2010. Probably not going to be the year to do the conversion since your tax rate's going to be a good bit higher this year than it's going. It's, it normally is. Also, taxable income, it's anticipated to be significantly lower in retirement. What if you're one of these people that you're knocking it out of the park right now, but you know when you retire that you got a lot of your money in municipal bonds and other things, and you're just not going to have a lot of taxable income on the tax returns. So that's not going to be a good fit for you. And then um, if your estate plan focuses on really the charitable side of things, maybe you've got an organization that you're really – you're trying to do some legacy planning where you're you're counting on if something ever happens to you that a lot of that money's going to pass on to the charity. It doesn't make sense to really to pay the tax now because that charity's not going to have to pay that tax anyway. So those are the the really big reasons um, for those. If you're out there and you're want, falling into those categories, you might not want to do this now. Bo, did you have something? Because I was going to jump into now the tax rates, you know, and how what we need to think about there, uh, and and how that works out. Go ahead. Um, the first thing you need to go before you run out right now and go find your last year's tax return, then you need to think about how this number I'm going to tell you to go look on last year's tax return is going to flow through to this year. You need to go figure out what your taxable income is probably going to be for 2010. And a good, you know, you can get a good idea of that by going and looking at your 29. And that's line 43. That's the second page of your 1040, your personal tax return. But line 43 and taxable income. I know when Bo called a lot of our clients and asked them what taxable income was, they a lot of them immediately jumped out and threw out their adjusted gross income, which was their total income, basically if you add up everything before deductions. Well, what we want is your taxable income, which you get to take all your standard or itemized deductions, plus you get to take all your personal exemptions for yourself, children, dependents, and everybody else. So you, you take all those things away, and the last thing before you figure out what your tax is, that's your taxable income. And that's the number that I need you to know so you can really make a judgment on whether you need to consider this. And what I'm telling people, now this is, this is my opinion, so please know that this is my opinion, and I can give you the logic on why I have this opinion. First of all, if you're in the 15% tax bracket, this is a no-brainer for you. 
um, you need to maximize that 15% tax bracket as much as possible. Now, if the person in the 15%, they could have been doing Roth conversions anyway, but I still think it's important if you're one of these young people out there and maybe you have some cash in the bank that's not your emergency reserves, you probably want to think about doing some Roth conversions to maximize that 15% bracket. Also, if you're a retired person, it's not a bad idea. And Bo, that 15% bracket goes up to which level? If you're single, it goes up to 34000 And if you're married filing jointly, it goes up to 68000 Okay, so that's, um, that's the 15%. But I, I want to go a step further. I think 15 is a no-brainer, but I think with the state of what's going on, up on the federal level as well as the state and, and local level, taxes are going to go up. Because remember, this is not only a federal decision. Um, Roth IRAs should be exempt also from the state income taxes. So with that being the case, I mean, this fall it hits on all facets. You've got to look at um, where you're going to be with, uh, you, you know, the 25% bracket as well. I think the 25% bracket is a very affordable rate right now. I'm not so sure that rate's going to stay around for a long time. And the 25% bracket, Bo, I'm doing this off memory, but isn't that for married couples around 137 or that, something? That's absolutely 137, 300 for married. And then if you're single, it goes up to 82, 400. So look at your personal situation. And if you haven't, you know, if because that could be somebody who's making, you know, 150, 160, 170, because you take out your deductions, you take out your exemptions. Now, all of a sudden, you've got some play to where you might have ten, twenty, thirty thousand dollars that you could convert and still maximize that twenty-five percent bracket. So that's really the advice I would give: is that anybody who's looking at the situation, the twenty-five percent bracket is kind of that sweet spot. Now, once you get into the higher brackets, especially if you're, once you break that thirty range, that thirty percent range, I don't know how much this. I mean, that. We have CPA friends of ours that are trying to, we even know an advisor who's got a, a client who's converting over a million dollars into a Roth. I, I'm sure there's reasons, and I, I'm sure somebody could convince me that that's the right thing to do. But I think for the typical person that's listening to this show, the very successful person that is you know, making somewhere in that, that 175 to 200 range, but you have enough deductions that you can push your taxable income down to where you have twenty to $30,000 that could be converted and you have some cash reserves, it's a good idea. I really do think it's a good idea. I'm going to be looking at this pretty hard for myself um, because I, you also have to think about the basis. The tax basis is that if you do, like myself, I've been com contributing to a non-deductible IRA for a number of years, but yeah, I've got some rollovers and other things, so it's not a, a slam dunk because of our income situation. But what I do like is is that the basis is high enough that it it's really kind of a nice... Uh, do, you, do you see what I'm saying? Absolutely. That, you know, only so maybe I have basis that's covering already 20% of the amount that I'm going to convert. So why not go ahead since I already have that stepped up basis, if that makes sense? I hope I'm explaining that well. Um, another strategy that Bo and I have been working feverishly on is 2009 and 2010 non-deductible IRAs. We're telling our clients that th that made too much money to contribute to IRA, Roth IRAs in the past. We're saying this is a no-brainer. Go make a non-deductible 2009 contribution because you have until April to do that. And then let's go ahead and make a 2010 non-deductible IRA contribution because you still make too much money to make a Roth contribution. And then let's immediately convert those over to a Roth IRA. So it's a little bit of extra paperwork, but it's worthwhile because, I mean, you think about 
uh, a couple could essentially do twenty thousand dollars if they're under fifty because they could eat, you know one could do five, they each could do five for last year two thousand nine then they each do five for this year that's twenty grand you can immediately get into a Roth and if you're over you know fifty it actually goes up another thousand dollars so you could very easily get twenty four thousand dollars into that Roth IRA with just doing some paperwork. So we've been working very hard to make sure we're maximizing that for clients that, that it's a good fit for. And that's primarily, you, when we when I say good fit, that's those clients that we look at them, their situation, and they ha- all they have is 401ks, 403bs, and no rollovers. So maybe all their money's in taxable money, and then it's in qualified ERISA money, like 401ks and 403bs. Then we call them up and say, you've got to be, a, you've got to do this Roth conversion with a non-deductible IRA. That's a good fit. Um, I've heard somebody, I'm going to go ahead and tell you one of the crazy things I've heard out there. Um, because one of my CPA buddies called me up and I've read it in some trade journals. I think it's a little out there unless you have a lot of money um, to do this with. But he talked about doing a Roth IRA for every asset class. So, for instance, if you were going to do, you'd set up a Roth IRA, you know, you do the conversion and set up a separate IRA for your foreign investments, your international investments. You'd set up another Roth IRA for your commodities. You'd set up another IRA for your large cap stocks. And then what happens is at the end of the year, if you lost money in any of them, you would go recharacterize it, and meaning that you could basically undo the process and you could take then go take that loss on your federal taxes. Because remember, the only bad thing about Roth IRAs is if you invest and say the market goes bad this year, unless you go undo the whole process, you can't take that loss on your tax return. So he was, you know, he was all excited. And I said, but let's let's think about this. Because I always say, yeah, that's a great, that's something that a rocket scientist would come up with a great idea. But if you have a $20,000, you know, IRA, and you go put it in three or four different asset classes, are you really going to go set up a, a separate account for a thousand bucks or two thousand bucks if that's what you put into commodities or something? Like I, I just think that logistically it doesn't work as well as the conceptual thought does because there's a lot of moving parts there. But just want to throw it out there because part of this is I want to go beyond common sense. So maybe if you're converting two, three, four hundred thousand dollars into a Roth IRA, yeah, it probably makes a lot of sense to consider doing something like that. But if you're doing like the average person, I think is going to do, and probably do ten, twenty. You know, maybe thirty thousand. You know, then then I don't know if it makes as much sense. But I, I kind of hit on right there is that the next question a lot of people ask is say, if I if can I undo this later? And it's a it's a kind of a pain to go recharacterize it. That's what they call it when you undo it. But you do have time to go recharacterize um, the conversion and then take it whatever tax. You know, if you want to take that loss on your taxes, you can do that. Uh, as part of it. They call it recharacterization in the Roth IRA jargon. Bo, is there anything else we want to add on this? Well, this is what I was going to say. So if you followed if you followed all along and everything made sense, but you said, hold on, all right, what was, what was the first step? I'm going to kind of walk through the process that we do for each one of our clients. So if you're listening, now might be a good time to go grab a sheet of paper or open up an Excel spreadsheet and think about it because this is the way our thought process went. If you're married, um, the first thing you want to do is you want to look at you and your wife or you and your husband separately because you don't want to you don't want to aggregate all of your account balances because it is a separate thing. You know, IRAs can only be held in one or the other name, so you need to look at it as two separate people considering to do this. Great point. I totally didn't even mention that. Um, so the first thing I would do is for for you and then for your spouse. I would add up your total IRA account balances that are going to be includable. And this, you know, like Brian said, these are SEPs, SIMPLES, traditional IRAs, everything except for inherited IRAs and Roth IRAs. Then 
I would add up all of the basis you have. And to make this real easy, the only IRAs that you're probably going to have basis in are going to be non-deductible traditional IRAs. If you have a simple, you have zero basis. If you have a SEP, you have zero basis, so on and so forth. Once you've done that, it's very easy to figure out what percentage of your basis you have. So if you take that basis, you know, let's just say it was $10,000, divide it by your total, um, your total IRA balances. And let's say your total is 100,000. You have 10% basis. So what that means is whatever amount that you choose to convert is going to be 90% taxable. Very, very easy way to think about it. So then you say to yourself, okay, I'm going to go back, look at my 2008 tax return. I'm going to think about 2010. Um, is my income up? Is my income down? Do I have more, more, um, uh, more deductions, less deductions? And then um, once you figure that out, say, okay, I want to max out this 15% bracket, max out this 30% bracket, whatever it is, add, add however much you're planning on converting. You know, say, say you want to convert 10000 90% of that is going to be taxable. So you're going to have to pay tax on $9,000. So whatever that taxable income number you came up with for 2010, add 9000 to it, and that's your new taxable income number. Um, if it makes sense, if you can afford the additional taxes and you have outside money to pay for it, I think it's probably a pretty good decision. So that's kind of the process we go through. Um, we do it. I, I'm, I, I'm letting you kind of see behind, you know, behind the Wizard of Oz here. We, we just do it in Excel spreadsheet, line by line. Um, and go through it that way. And then, you know, if you're outside of the 25% bracket, I would say you definitely want to consult your CPA or financial advisor to kind of talk through it and see if it makes sense for you. And remember, you have, you do, I know the proration makes it where you don't have as much play as a lot of people think you can go cherry pick the accounts, but you do have a planning opportunity also is that this is the one, one of the unique things about this year is you can spread it out over two years. So you do have some tax planning because you can figure out how much you want to allocate to, you know, can spread out that taxable amount over two years. So there's a planning. I, I think that was a great recap, Bo, and I, I like how you kind of go through the analytical of our, how we do our spreadsheets and everything here. So let's close out the Roth segment, and then I want to read this email from Larry. Is that a, is that a good Absolutely. transition point? Well, I got an email. You remember I, I made a point uh, when we were talking about last show we did was on retirement, happy retirement, and I made the point that I really think that in order to truly have a fulfilling retirement, when you enter retirement, I'd like you to be debt-free. And I even went on to talk about myself, how I'm, I'm saving what I need to be saving for retirement, um, but I've still got a little bit extra, so I'm using that little bit extra instead of even putting that into more investments. I've been using it to pay down my debt because I would like to be completely debt-free within the next 10 years, meaning I'm going to have my house paid for in 10 years. And I'm a young guy. I'm 36. I think I'm young. Bo thinks I'm old. <laughs> but um, I think I'm still young. So, I mean, that, that seems a little crazy to be completely debt-free at 46. But um, I, it's kind of a personal decision I've decided to make because I'm already saving what I think I need to for retirement. Uh, you know, I'm taking care of the kids' education. I'm fortunate enough, blessed that, that I do have this great situation. And I think a lot of people out there listening, I've, I've looked at who you are when I see your emails. You know, a lot of you guys are running your own companies. A lot of you guys are very successful. You're decision makers. So I think there's a lot of other people who are successful listeners who have that same potential. But I did get an email from Larry out in Arizona, and Larry is a CPA. And I want to read what he wrote because I thought he said it very well. And I think this is a consideration because that was my personal decision. And may, sometimes I need to be careful of the power of the microphone. But it says, Brian, 
regarding paying off home mortgage. Don't disagree with my clients or you that personally feel compelled to pay off their mortgages as peace of mind issue. I even think it is preferable if someone has more than enough to meet their retirement needs, but I think you should rethink advising folks in general to pay off their mortgage sooner or to use a 15-year product. 30-year fixed mortgages are effective in a world where inflation is a fact of life. Both the amount of debt, the payment itself, all are reduced by the ravages of inflation over time. You also mentioned the home mortgage and AMT. Mortgage interest, and then you put in parentheses, with the exception of home equity interest up to 100000 is not subject to AMT add back. Very good point, Larry. Using the dollars not used to pay down this debt for a diversified portfolio makes a lot more sense in my mind. I once believed that paying off early was the smart and secure thing to do, but with 4.75% interest rates and the government printing money, I have to believe it will be much better in the long run to have home mortgage debt using a 30-year fixed product at an amount that does not exceed two and a half times your income, or 80%. Um, and he has in parentheses right size home and 20% down. So he's just saying, you know, you don't want to go above two and a half times really what your income is. You have many impressionable listeners. You should mention the pros and cons of both strategies. If we get big inflation in two to five years and it persists a bit, you will wish you had some of that cheap debt. And Larry's probably right, but I'm trying to, that's why I was, I think that's why when he says you need to do the pros and cons, this is a great why. And he goes, otherwise, let's lose, close it out on a good thing. He says, otherwise, I like your show. A lot of good stuff for listeners. And like I said, Larry is a CPA as well as a CFP. So um, he's also a financial guy out there as well. And I think that's great advice, Larry. And I think it's, it's good to have that perspective because I want you guys to know when I give thoughts on that, it's my opinion on that. You know, this is something I've personally decided. And, and I think... We're all skewed and shaped by what's happened in our own in our own life, and you know. And one of the things that I saw as a child was my father was laid off in his late 40s, not because he did anything wrong. It's just because the industry he was in, the the big Fortune 500 company, decided they wanted to get out of that industry altogether. So they basically just shut down operations. Um, and sent everybody out. And so there's a part of me that I think is probably still has in my mind that. Um, I saw what the concern my parents had with debt and everything, and I, and I, and I still sit, stick in my head that I've yet to see a super wealthy person say, you know, the worst decision I ever made was I paid off that debt early. And, I, and I, like I told you, I think when I told the story at the last show, was I was talking to a, a, a real estate developer who was very successful, and he was shocked when I told him my, my debt payment plan. And I think Larry is, is very much, he, he falls on that analytical, and he's dead on with his assumptions. But there's a part of me that believes it goes beyond just analytical thoughts. Like I said, I have childhood memories of the, the financial struggles my parents had when my father was displaced in his late 40s, which is a scary time for a lot of people who are out there because, you know, you're supposed to be so far along in your career at 48 that think about if you had to jump into doing something else. That's a scary, scary thing. So those things have probably jaded me a little bit um, to thinking that I want to be as financially secure with debt as soon as possible. Now, I'm not as far as Dave Ramsey. You know, Dave's a whole nother level because um, I still do use credit cards and pay them off monthly, but I think I'm probably higher up on the the paying down debt than a lot of people out there listening. Uh, but my opinion, my thoughts, and I think Larry really laid out the others, the counter argument very well. And I think a lot of you guys will probably appreciate that. And a lot of you, you're going to hear something else I said today, maybe on the Roth IRA and you have a counterpoint. I'd encourage you to go to the show site, uh, the website, and go to money-guy.com. Leave some some comments. You know, the comments doesn't only have to just be talking to me. It can be just kind of a statement to other listeners. So, you know, we don't have an official forum section. So I think if you see a show topic that you want to provide some input on, 
great place to do it is right there on the website. Go so so go check us out, money-guy.com. Sign up for the free membership so you at least get um, access to some of our more more of our shows as well as get the email blast to tell you what's going on. Bo, anything else I need to add before we shut this show down? There were there were two things that just happened across my mind. One on the Roth conversion is so if you listen to the show, you kind of did the analysis we did. Um, as you go through, one of the things that, that I just thought of that we don't know the answer to, and Brian, he already gave you a disclaimer at the beginning, is let's say that it made sense. You say, okay, I'm going to do this Roth conversion. You go to the conversion, but then let, you know, you're planning on retiring later this year. And you say, um, okay, I'm going to retire. I have a 401k. I'm going to roll it over into an IRA. We don't know yet until the IRS releases those forms if that rollover is going to affect the taxability of your Roth conversion. Great point. So I would be careful making any big moves, um, rolling over rolling over any accounts, um, honestly, until we know for sure. So that's just one thing to be thinking about if you're close to that retirement stage or if you have old 401ks or old qualified plans that you're looking at rolling over, make sure you you think about and talk to a tax professional before you make that decision. And then the second thing is there's one other email. We didn't get to it today, but we will get to it, and I think it's pretty interesting. Just asking kind of what we think about the next 10 years. And um, I think in the future shows, because we just wrote a commentary. If you're a premium member, you've probably already read it. Um, and I think we'll share that, but just know that that's coming up uh, in, in the next coming in the coming weeks. Yeah, I, 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 I do have that email, but I looked down at the clock and saw this was a 15-minute show already, so I figured we'd save that for... An upcoming show. But guys, thanks so much. Our success is really driven by the comments you're leaving on iTunes, keeping us very relevant on iTunes, as well as just the feedback, um, providing comments, telling your friends and family. I mean, think about the power of this show. We don't have a big corporation behind us that's helped marketing us. Our growth is strictly from the grassroots efforts you've provided. I give you a big thank you, but I also want to give you a big word of encouragement. Please keep telling your friends and family. Please keep leaving positive feedback because we want to provide that objective advice that's not out there for free. Um, you know, it's it's hard. I feel guilty sometimes. I shouldn't say guilty. Maybe I should say blessed or very fortunate that our, our firm has grown to the point that we do have minimums on client relationships, and this is to fill that void. But I'd also encourage you, we've picked up a lot of great friends from this show where we, you know, not only have we made friends in the internet and podcasting community, but we've also made new clients from this, this show and have made some great relationships. I encourage you, if you like what you hear, give us a call and check us out on the professional side too. I'm your host, Brian Preston. We'll talk to you soon. The Money Guy podcast is hosted by Brian Preston. And Brian Preston is a partner with Preston and Cleveland Wealth Management. Preston and Cleveland Wealth Management is a registered investment advisory firm regulated by the Securities and Exchange Commission in accordance and compliance with securities laws and regulations. Preston and Cleveland Wealth Management does not render or offer to render personalized investment or tax advice through the Money Guy podcast. The information provided is for informational purposes only and does not constitute financial, tax, investment, or legal advice. 